Hi there, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Elena McGrath, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Neil Garrity about his new book, The Polyphonic Machine, Capitalism, Political Violence, and Resistance in Contemporary Argentine Literature. Neil is a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at the School of Advanced Study and the Institute of Latin American Studies at the University of London. Welcome to the show. I wonder if you might Tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about how you came to this project. Hi there. Um, thank you very much for, for having me on. Um, so, yeah, how did I come to this project? That's a great question. Um, so I think, I guess I really need to go all the way back to my undergraduate studies to sort of describe how, how this came about. And um, I completed them at the, the University of Glasgow in, in Scotland. That's my sort of native home. And um, at the time... I had a, a wonderful teacher, Karen Benaventi, who, who taught a good course on, on Borges, and um, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed that course. And then as I moved on, and I moved into Cambridge to, to do postgraduate study, first the master's and then laterally the PhD, I'd been getting increasingly interested in, in Argentine literature and then started to explore that further and, and uh, formulate ideas about, about Argentine literature. Um, and then, yeah, I guess I focused in on texts that reflected in some way, and, and not necessarily a, a purely reflective manner, on, on themes of violence broadly understood, um, especially around um, the last dictatorship in Argentina. And the intertwining of sort of political violence with with capitalism. Um, so the the project gradually focused in on on three authors um, who engaged with sort of Argentine history in that manner, but they were also very theoretically literate. Um, and that's the the case for Cesar Ayra and Marcelo Cohen and Ricardo Piglia. I think Argentine society, or certainly Buenos Aires society, is very literary and also incredibly um, well-versed in, in sort of contemporary theory and philosophy. And that's reflected in these texts and was something that really um, grabbed me. And uh, that was sort of the genesis of the idea, sort of consolidating around um, reflections on violence and capitalism um, but doing so in a manner that was very sort of uh, theoretically inflected, maybe. I think that's that's kind of the genesis. That that makes a lot of sense, and all three authors really do combine those two those two impulses. Um, so, what made you structure the book around, um, in particular, pairing Pilia and Aira? Um, who, as you note, are not often considered to be on the same page, as it were. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I think, yeah, in in, um, in the sort of existing criticism, there's there's a tendency even to, we could say, read Ayra and Piglia as sort of um, polar opposites in their, their approach to, to literature. And um, Ayra wrote a very famous or perhaps infamous article that, that decried Piglia and especially Respedacion Artificial. Um, and that's that's sort of consolidated into a kind of critical commonplace. And I, I don't want to overlook the important differences between the, the two authors, 
Um, but I was certainly, through my reading, I, I felt that there was closer parallels than, than had perhaps been recognised previously. Um, and that maybe <coughs> Ira's condemnation and rejection of Piglia was not as absolute as, it, as he presented it at first. Um, Ira is a very uh, slippery author in many ways, and it's uh, uh, <coughs> very difficult to, to pin down to, to certain positions. And I felt that maybe this was another one that could be explored and questioned somewhat. Um, and I felt that there, there was a way of reading their literature where they could uh, come into a sort of co-functioning that, that could be productive and, and interesting. And certainly in that light, I also felt that, that Cohen would be an essential sort of um, additional author to help pull out some of these similarities um, and uh, develop what, what I could sort of see developing between, between Ira and Pelia. Um, and yet, I, I guess in a certain sense, it, it, it comes back down to the, the sort of theoretical um, angle that I could that I could perceive in, in all three authors' work. Um, yeah, I think that's that's sort of what was happening there. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so you start with Ida, which I think is a, another very interesting choice, and um, you're sort of reflecting on on his positing of violence and capitalism as sort of foundational to Argentina, right? And I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit more about what made you start there and and what you think uh, that foundation allows us to see. So I, I guess, it, yeah, it comes down to, to how I read Daira's novel, Emma La Cautiva. Um, Ira has a whole series of novels set in 19th century um, Argentina and the Pampa, and uh, Emma La Gaudia is, is one of these. And while Ira is not considered to be an overtly political author, I did feel that in, in this novel there was a, a latent political commentary. And I, I didn't think it would... Sorry, uh, it was published in, I think it was in 1979. Um, and uh, and that uh, and it seemed far beyond coincidental that that was the, in the midst of the, the Argentine dictatorship and at the same time as the centenary of the, the conquest of the desert, or the, at least the final episodes of the, the conquest of the desert, which the, campaign led against the indigenous population um, in Argentina and the, its final very destructive phase um, or for for certain historians the, the final genocide of the indigenous population um, led by um, Julio Argentino Roca and so I feel that this uh, temporal coincidence which others have noted as well um, provided a way of, of reading Iris' novel that reflected on, on what that moment might signify historically. Um, the consolidation of the nation state, the beginning of a capitalist economy based on agro-exports, um, and then also uh, around a similar time, something like David Binyas is starting to consider that moment historically to argue that the indigenous population were the first disappeared in Argentine history. And I, I, I could see that 
argument of Vinyas is um, reflected in Ira's novel. So I felt it, it, it gave a way to sort of ground the later discu- discussion of the most recent dictatorship historically, in a sense, and uh, we could that we could look at that that moment of the conquest of the desert as the beginning of a of a cycle of um, violence that would be repeated over the century. The naming of a internal enemy, quote unquote, as as subversive and as dangerous to the nation, and that needed to be corrected, if you like. So, so moving on to sort of the second section where you engage with Cohen's works, and you you sort of suggest that Cohen is more able to identify continuities in the post-dictatorship period and continuations of a society that is built around control because he was writing from the outside. Can you can you reflect a little more on on what role um, Cohen's analysis plays in your book? Yeah, that I mean, that's a Cohen went into exile um, during the, the dictatorship and, and lived in Barcelona, and he, he does have certain texts where he talks about living far away and news drifting over to him of of what's happening in Argentina, and then um, with the return to democracy, he, he um, moves back to Argentina, and um, I don't want to overplay that sort of personal biographical um, argument, but I, I do I do find it interesting that um, that uh, Cohen moves back and in a a period that has sometimes been conceptualized as a sort of springtime for the people um, and the the end of this dictatorship, which has been incredibly violent and has disciplined society in a very extreme way. Um, Cohen's novels around about this time still focus on, focus on very restricted enclosures within which um, discipline is applied in a very violent, although that violence may be structural or isn't necessarily always the brute physical violence that, that one might expect. Um, but there's, there seemed to be a, something of a a contradiction between the opening up of Argentine society and Cohen's continual focus on, excuse me, spaces of enclosure and um, containment and control. And then when I started reading through his novels, um, he reflects an awful lot on uh, mass media culture and how that becomes a mechanism of control. So I, I consider that Cohen... For me, his novels sort of look at some of the systems of control that continue beyond the end of the dictatorship or the, the metamorphose, and they may express themselves differently, but uh, uh, this idea that there's still um, elements controlling populations um, and, and limiting the freedoms that they may have gained. Um, so, yeah, that's how I read his literature. and. Um, yeah, sort of, I, I read it as a, a literature of transition, but a transition that's, that's not given a very um, positive inflection, if you like. It, it strikes me that both of those historical moments, both the, um, the campaign of the desert and also the transition, are moments where you can really see the link that exists between capitalism and political violence in Argentine society. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, I think um, 
and lots of people have, have written about and, and reflected on, on those ideas. And certainly in the Argentine case, uh, if the last military dictatorship attempted to to sort of establish a sort of neoliberal economy, especially through the actions of Martinez de Hoz, um, they weren't entirely successful. And it, it's only then with a delay and with the election of Carlos Menem in, in the 1989 and his structural adjustment program that that, that reaches fruition. And for someone like um, Leon Rosigner, uh, a very well-known um, Argentine philosopher and thinker, he argues that, that this is the sort of realization of the dictatorship's plan and that Argentine society therefore contains a sort of disguised terror that's carried over from the dictatorship through this sort of economic policy and this idea that society was given a, a sort of choice between freedom or they would you could gain a freedom by accepting the market that was the sort of what would you call it the the pact that society kind of made if you like so in that context um can you talk a little bit about your your third and final section where I think um, you see the most potential for resistance emerging in the works of Pilia? Yeah. Um, so with, so the, I think it, the, the sections are not necessarily um, laid out chronologically, if you like. Um, with the, the IRA section, I, I begin with a chapter reflecting back to sort of 19th century history and its parallels with what's happening in, in the in the late 70s. And then I argue that when he comes to, to write about the opening of the Argentine economy under Menem, he also reflects back on the sort of revolutionary impetus that was prevalent in the in the late 60s and, and 70s in Argentina. And then with Cohen, I, I look more at the development of power and control, as you mentioned, in the in the post-dictatorship period. And then the third section is, well, I was going to say it's interesting, that's not really for me to say, but um, <laughs> I, uh, in the, the first chapter, I, I returned to Piglia's Respiración Artificial, which is a very celebrated novel um, written during the dictatorship, which um, it reflects on the, the dictatorship, but in a very oblique manner um and then in the second chapter i look at la ciudad ausente which which comes later and um and uh reflects on the the opening on the, of the argentine economy again um so the the, the section's really as well as a reflection on Biglia's writing it's also pulling together certain um other strands in the, in the book as a whole. So I argue that in Respiración Artificial, um, Biglia also returns to, to Argentine history in a manner similar to Aira and Emela Cautiva, and does so to reflect on on the, the power and the sort of systems that sustained the philosophical systems that sustained the dictatorship um, during this exercise of power. And then I argue that in La Ciudad Ausente, there's a sort of nascent description of the forms of control that are much more 
deeply elaborated and described and imagined by by Cohen. So in that sense, there, it, it pulls together the book in a, in a kind of um, almost sort of straightforward fashion, if you like. But then I, I also feel that um, Bigley engages, engages, but um, not necessarily directly, but um, has very similar or parallel concerns. And his work can be read very productively with the work of Gilles Deleuze, and that that opens up alternative conceptions of being, or rather becoming, um, that posit a way both for literature and people to resist these philosophical systems that, that, that I believe he argues sustains dictatorship, control, and, and violence, and which are uh, very closely intertwined with capitalism. Um, and and yeah, and then this second sort of argument, this more abstract philosophical argument, if you like, also links back through the previous two sections, and that I I feel that Ira very definitely is is influenced by um, Deleuze's conception of becoming other, a sort of spontaneous and <clears throat> spectacular metamorphosis that that releases um, productive energy and can alter society by challenging established norms and rules. And uh, in Cohen, he, he looks actually at how that, that release of, of energy can actually be captured by capitalism, how, capture, er, how um, capitalism develops to absorb that potential. Uh, and then with Pigilea, I'm looking at how he uses literature to, to, as a means of sort of engaging that process of becoming, um, opening up new avenues for, for being and resisting in a sort of abstract sense, I guess. It strikes me that, um, so you, you begin your book with this discussion of um, the author as someone who is, um, who potentially only exists because of forces of coercion in the market. And then um, Pelia in particular is someone who plays with this idea and plays with the idea of, of Argentine literature as something of plagiarism and plagiarism is resistance. But then your work itself is also kind of in, in the way you structure the book, you're, you are also kind of reflecting back on that tension that you see in the works between historic time and this moment of becoming. Um, did you, did you set off in the beginning to write that way? Or was that something that came out of the process of writing the book itself? Yeah. So, so yeah, that's right. And the, the introduction opens up with a, a reflection on Foucault's, uh, arguments about the, the author function is, as he describes it. Um, I just felt that we should attribute that. <laughs> it's not, not strictly yeah. my idea, alas. But, um, uh, but yeah, no, no, you're right. And I did, I did feel, and I, I, I continue to feel that um, not just for me, but, but for all of us engaged in, in sort of academic research, structure is a place where we can really be creative and where we can. Um, we can express 
ideas in a very creative but quite subtle manner that that could be engaging for for our readers and that's certainly something i i tried to do and it certainly with the the authors i was dealing with who who write in very different manners but in incredibly engaging ways um I definitely wanted to try and reflect what I was talking about in in my my work itself, if if you like. Um, so I tried to, yeah, I tried to structure the the book in a way that would um, contain sort of two arguments, if you like. One one which is a sort of historical development reflecting on violence and capitalism that that runs as we've seen or as we've been talking about from from the 19th century through periods of dictatorship and then up to the the opening of the Argentine economy um, in the the 1990s. But then I felt that there was this second sort of argument growing, if you like, as I was writing the book, that's more about these um, non-linear connections that appear and flourish or bloom and create sporadic connections between the authors that undermine or, or, or challenge that historical um, progression. And and so, yeah, so although in some ways the, the format of the book might appear very standard, it's uh, three sections and one for each author, and they move in sort of historical periods, each section also ends with a... a extended kind of um meditation maybe on on the sort of machinic to borrow Deleuze's term or Deleuze and Guattari's term the machinic connections between between the authors to bring them into a, a different form of sort of open totality um and as you said in that I'm, I'm definitely influenced by by the well certainly by the 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 authors themselves primarily and all all three authors um, show a particular preoccupation with Kafka and um, and in the case of Ira and, and Cohen we we know that um, from things that they've they've written that, that they were particularly taken by Deleuze and Guattari's book on on Kafka and um, Piglia as well was certainly interested in Kafka in a very very deep way so I use um, Deleuze and Guattari's book on, on Kafka as a sort of um, hermeneutic tool to pull out these machinic connections. And those final reflections are are primarily looking at their work through through the lens of um, Deleuze and Guattari's book on Kafka. And then <laughs> with it, what you were referring to, I think, with, with the, these ideas of, of um, plagiarism and, and um, and uh, yeah, the sort of creative potential of plagiarism, which is obviously hugely important for uh, for Piglia, and, and we know he's drawing it really from Borges and, and some others, but primarily Borges. And then we also know that that's in a sense hugely important for for Deleuze and his entire conception of difference and and repetition, which. He even cites um, Borges's um, <clears throat> Pierre Menard in, in the preface to Difference and Repetition as 
a sort of perfect example of what he's going to go on to describe. Now, I I'm not suggesting that my book is plagiarized. <laughs> That's not the case. But it's certainly, I, I tried to incorporate a, a lot of different voices by using a lot of citations to try and give a sense of the of the kind of polyphony that, that can come through that, that method of writing, that use of multiple voices to express a single voice. And that's something I, I tried to do and, and tried to sort of creatively use citation to, to reflect what I was talking about, um, I think. And, yeah, I mean, it's so some of those ideas were, were there from the start and others came out through the process of writing and, and organizing material. Um, and it gradually took the shape that it, that it had at the end, I think. It's a, it's a fun read. Um, well, this seems like a good moment to ask you then about the title. Okay, and, yeah. And about the work of the machine, the, the polyphonic machine. Yeah, so the, the title is... <laughs> Yeah. So, so yeah, the 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 machine um, certainly referring back to to Deleuze and Guattari and, and their idea that that books are assemblages that that create functional connections with with other texts and other systems of knowledge and that that are capable of sort of uh, spontaneous and sporadic creativity. Um, also very closely connected to their conception of the rhizome. Um, and certainly the machine part is me referring to the three authors as a sort of singularity that is inherently multiple and generative of, of new connections between the, the three authors and, and plural and, in, a sen in essence, polyphonic. And um, again, um, it, it, as we move through, and certainly, um, if we come back to Deleuze Deleuze's idea of the the university of being um, and the plane of eminence, these are inherently polyphonic types of uh, unity, if you like, um, which another way of expressing sort of multiplicity. Um, and so I I felt that that was something I was striving towards and. That was the, the point at which I, uh, I kind of pulled the, the book to, together at the conclusion, this um, reflection on sort of um, many voices expressing a kind of singular argument, if you like. So I know that um, I know that some of the authors, I know that Pelia in particular was sort of concerned with the role of Argentine literature more globally and, and wanted to sort of posit a, a standing up with the rest of the world. And so I wonder if um, these works, which or these authors, which taken together, definitely allow us to reflect on the specificity of the Argentine dictatorship in new ways. Um, do they also allow us to sort of speak to processes of capitalism and violence beyond the nation itself? Yeah, I would, I would definitely say so. Um, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh... Yeah, there's certainly, I mean, there's, I guess, another tension in, in my book and um, I'm sure in others as well, but between uh, the forces of, of capitalism, if you like, which are uh, necessarily, at least in the contemporary manifestation, they're globalized and the, the forces of globalization, if you like, um, 
and yet I do focus on one specific country and, and retain this idea of the, the nation as a sort of useful concept. So there's a kind of tension there between the sort of transnational and the national. Um, but I certainly feel that um, the Argentine case, as these authors write about it, becomes like a sort of paradigmatic example of the functioning of capitalism in a sort of brute form um, that allows us to see with particular clarity processes that are, that are happening elsewhere, um, but perhaps in, in slightly different manners. But um, it sort of allows us to, to grasp the sort of um, reality of, of how that how that works. It, it becomes a sort of um, a localised application of globalised forces, if you like, which definitely play out in a very specific way and in a, a very specific context. But I think there is a, a mobility to to those ideas and, and uh, to to how these things are repro- reproduced elsewhere. Um, certainly in the book, when, when I reflect on this, I, I, I draw on, on Doreen Massey's work on um, on the difference between space and place in a way. And I guess I kind of look at Argentina as, as a place in, in Massey's terms where, where forces come together um, and interact and <laughs> and uh, produce things in a sort of localised but open and inherently multiple way um, where capitalism, I guess, would be something closer to, to space where um, there's sort of a, a generalised multiplicity extended um, over over time and space where, where it's more of an abstraction, I guess. Yeah, I think the book does a really elegant job of weaving all those strands together. I was wondering um, what you're working on right now and if you have new projects that you're excited about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> let me think. Um, so since um, producing the book or finalizing the book, um, I've been doing a bit more work on, on film. Um, I have various different articles on on films um not just from Argentina but, but from from elsewhere in, in Latin America as well. Um I've been focusing specifically on a Argentine filmmaker called Jonathan Farrell um who who looks at processes of sort of memorialization of the of the most recent dictatorship in uh, in a very experimental manner. Um his his films are are very beautiful, but they're they're very challenging, and the only feature um, uh, fixed camera positions and real time shots of extended or prolonged duration of objects and spaces that are in some ways connected with the dictatorship. They feature largely no narrative and almost no human personages. So I've I've been looking at his films quite a lot. And then more recently, I've, I've, I've started a, a longer term research project, which is looking at the artwork of Leon Ferrari, um, another very important um, artist from, from Argentina. Um, and Ferrari uh, has, has made very political art it's, um, that critiques and condemns the, the most recent dictatorship, but he ties it with a, a, a critique of the, the Catholic Church. Um, 
and I'm starting to look at his images to sort of ask what theology may look like if we took Ferrari's work not just as a, a radical condemnation of the church, but as a, a challenge to sort of theological thinking, um, to ask what new forms of theology that, that may produce. And, uh, and it actually, just um, a couple of days ago, uh, a book that I co-edited with a, a colleague, um, Adriano Macida, just was, was just launched, um, and that's called Creative Spaces, uh, Urban Culture and Marginality in Latin America. And that's looking at the ways in which um, seemingly marginalized spaces in, in Latin America can become loci for creation and creativity and and how that may play out and um, that's a I was really happy with that volume I think it's come together very well um, and it, it's a very interdisciplinary volume you have contributions from planning from architecture from history from from film studies um, and uh, yeah that was that was a really good project as well congratulations that sounds fascinating as well Cheers. Thank you. Well, Neil, um, I, I think we've taken up a lot of your time, so I want to really thank you for being on the show. It's a, it's a great project, and it was really fun to talk to you about it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for, for having me. That was, that was really great to, to talk to someone about the book, and thank you again. 